Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. Today we will follow the TARDIS crew as they try and escape the Daleks in The Chase. We will be talking about the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. To join in on the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Paddy, over to you. Thank you, Trish. Episode 1, The Executioners. On the TARDIS, the Doctor is installing the time-space visualiser they picked up on their last journey, but is distracted by the whistling of a bored Vicky. He tells her to go away and in her frustration ends up bothering Ian as he reads a book and accidentally ruins a dress Barbara was making for her. They suddenly hear a high-pitched whine coming from the room with the visualizer in it and go to investigate. The doctor explains that he is trying to synchronize the sonic rectifier and lineal amplifier. This of course makes no sense to Ian and Barbara, but Vicky catches on and she and the doctor explain that due to the nature of the universe, any event is recorded by the light particles in existence at the time, and the visualizer acts as a sort of time television that will allow them to view these events. They take it for a test drive by watching the Gettysburg Address, Shakespeare being inspired to write The Merry Wives of Windsor and Hamlet, and a performance by the Beatles on television. Their fun is cut short, unfortunately, after Barbara accidentally desynchronizes the machine when she tries to turn it up. Their attention is then brought to the fact that they are materialising. They find themselves on a planet with two suns, and all around they can see is miles and miles of sand. Vicky rushes off to explore, and Ian goes to chase after her, but not before the Doctor gives him a TARDIS magnet, which will guide him back to the TARDIS if they get lost. As they move on, they come across a strange seaweed-like outcroppings, and Vicky notices a trail that Ian jokingly says looked like blood, which they go off and follow. As they leave, they fail to notice a tentacle rising from the sand where they had been standing. Back at the TARDIS, the Doctor and Barbara are sunbathing when she suddenly hears the visualizer activating. The Doctor tells her to go shut it off, but once she gets there, she sees images of a group of Daleks reporting to their Supreme Commander. She calls the Doctor in, and together they watch as the Daleks discuss their pursuit of the TARDIS. It is revealed that these Daleks are from a time after their forces were defeated on Earth. They aim to catch the TARDIS and its crew in order to exterminate them and prevent their interference in their plans of conquest. A squad of Daleks enter their time machine. The Doctor realises that the Daleks could have already arrived on the planet by now and says that they need to get Ian and Vicky so they can leave. Night begins to fall as they search for their friends, calling out to them but to no avail. The Doctor says that they should go back to the TARDIS but they disagree about which way they came. The Doctor says that he has the instincts of a homing pigeon and he knows how to get back to his own ship. Ian and Vicky come to the end of the trail they were following and after finding nothing there decide to rest before going back to the TARDIS before it gets too dark to see. Ian spots a ring half buried in the sand. He goes to pull it but Vicky stops him citing an old fairy story about a ring in a field that opened the trap door to a magic kingdom. Ian convinces her it's just a story and she helps him to try and lift it. They succeed in breaking the ring from its mooring but nothing seems to happen. However, once they decide to leave, a trapdoor opens behind them and they decide to explore it. The door closes behind them and a tentacle reaches out of the darkness towards them. On their way back to the TARDIS, the Doctor and Barbara get caught in the middle of a freak sandstorm. They take shelter in an indent and wait for it to pass. They rise up from the layers of sand covering them and look on in dismay when they notice all the terrain around them has changed. Barbara despairs at not being able to find their way back to the TARDIS, but the Doctor says that they can find their way back to the tar- with the TARDIS magnet only to realise that he gave it to Ian. They decide to press on in their attempts to locate their missing friends, but stop when they witness a Dalek struggling to emerge from the sand. 
Episode 2 The Debt of Time The rest of the Daleks emerge from the sand with the commander ordering them to find and destroy the TARDIS and exterminate the travellers. The Doctor and Barbara go to leave to find the others but are apprehended by two bipedal reptilian creatures. One of them introduces himself and his colleagues as Iridians and they are one of the two native species on the planet. They say that the planet was once covered in vast oceans but the two orbiting suns slowly evaporated them away as their rotations drew them closer to the planet. As the oceans receded, the other native species, who lived in the more marshy areas of the planet, the Mire Beasts, became more aggressive and started to launch assaults on the Iridian cities. The Iridians did their best to fight them off, but the Mire Beasts had superior numbers and eventually forced the Iridians out of their cities into the newly formed desert regions. The Doctor realises that Ian and Vicky are in danger from them, as well as the Daleks, and asks the Iridian for help. The Iridians state that if they hadn't gone too far before it got dark, then they were more likely came across one of the airlocks belonging to one of the old cities. However, they say there's no use to go after them, as they more than likely will be killed as the airlocks of the nearby city have been rigged with explosives in an effort to trap the Mire Beasts there and force them to starve to death. Barbara demands that they help, and the Iridians, fearful of her rat, say that if they hurry they may have enough time. Ian and Vicky are chased through the underground tunnels by the Mire Beasts and are nearly caught when a section of roof caves in on them as a result of the explosion. The Mire Beasts are crushed to death and Ian is knocked unconscious. Vicky promises him that she will find help and she takes off. Meanwhile, the Daleks locate the TARDIS and decide to, to take some Iridians as slaves so they can dig out the TARDIS for it to be destroyed. The Doctor and Barbara and the Iridians arrive at one of the unexploded airlocks. They are offered food and shelter before they begin their search for the others, an offer which the Doctor is reluctant to accept as it could put the Iridians at risk for the Daleks. The Iridians assure him that they will be alright and so he and Barbara go into the city to get something to eat. Barbara is despondent and annoyed as she thinks that they are wasting their time instead of going after Ian and Vicky, but the Doctor tells her to have faith in their friends' abilities. He tells her to get some rest as she is exhausted. After she falls asleep, a few Iridians enter and inform the Doctor that the Dalek commander has issued an ultimatum to the city elders. Either turn over the travellers or their people will be exterminated. The Doctor says that he and Barbara will leave in order to save them, but the Iridians tell him that they cannot leave of their own accord, otherwise the ultimatum is void and the Daleks will attack. Back in the tunnels, Vicky notices a shaft of light and climbs up towards it and emerges through the top of a sand dune that is both conveniently and dangerously close to the newly uncovered TARDIS. The Dalek commander orders the slaves to be executed and then for the TARDIS to be destroyed. However, the ship remains undamaged after several salvos. The commander orders two Daleks to remain on guard whilst he goes to accept the Iridian Elder's answer. The answer isn't long in coming and the Doctor and Barbara are to be handed over to ensure the safety of their people. They are told that they will be handed over at sunset, which is about two hours away. Suddenly, Vicky is brought into the cell after being apprehended by an Iridian while she was on her way back to Ian from the sand dune. She tells the other about what happened to Ian and informs him of having seen the TARDIS from the sand dune. The Doctor asks her if she could find her way back to the dune, but before they can make an escape plan, several Iridians, including the ones that had brought them into the city, arrive to take them to the Daleks. Suddenly, a walled entranceway caves in and a mire beast tries to push its way into the city. They try to force it back, but it is too strong and enters the room, trapping one of the friendly Iridians in its tentacles. Barbara tries to save him, but it is of no use as the mire beast starts to eat him, and the doctor ushers her and Vicky out of the room into the tunnel. Ian comes to and makes his way down the tunnel and reaches the entrance to the doom. He spots the Daleks and observes the commander return to tell them that the travellers have escaped. 
He informs them that the Iridians have one hour to un- recover the travellers before they destroy the city, and he takes one of the guards with him to bolster their forces. Ian turns back to in order to find some weapons, and is delighted to see the others as they arrive. He tells them that he has a plan to distract the Daleks so that they can escape into the TARDIS. He takes the coats from a reluctant Barbara and the Doctor, and uses them along with sand and some poles to create a pitfall. He and the others begin to call out to the Dalek, confusing it and forcing it to fire wildly at the direction of their voices. It advances towards them and falls through the pitfall, but its shooting has drawn the attention of the other Daleks, and so the travellers rush into the TARDIS and dematerialise. The Daleks shoot at it ineffectually, and then proceed to retreat to their own time machine so that they can carry on in the pursuit. Episode 3. Flight Through Eternity The travellers are rejoicing their narrow escape from the Daleks, ribbing each other of their respective attitudes towards the predicament that they were in. Suddenly, an alarm starts to go off, and the Doctor informs them that it is from the Time Path Detector, a device which he installed on one of their other travels. It indicates that there is another time machine on the same path as them. In the vortex, the Dalek ship pursues the TARDIS to its next location, with one of its engineers saying that there is a 15-minute time difference between the two vessels, which is they are trying to reduce. Vicky suggests that they just keep outrunning them, but Ian and Barbara wonder how long they could keep it up for. The Doctor announces that after each landing, it will take the TARDIS exactly 12 minutes to recalibrate and recharge its engines, and it's a time frame that they need to keep on top of. Vicky notices that the TARDIS is about to land and it is revealed that their new landing site is the top of the Empire State Building in New York City. Barbara emerges from the ship and encounters a very confused but polite tourist from Alabama who informs him that the year is 1966. The rest of the group come out and realise that they need to leave to prevent putting the surrounding people in danger from the Daleks. They leave the bemused tourist under the assumption that he has just witnessed a scene from a Hollywood movie that is being shot and so he does not react when the Dalek time machine arrives moments later. After informing one of the Daleks that the others have just left, it retreats inside and the ship takes off, once again leaving the tourist amazed by the movie trickery he has just seen. The rest of the tour group arrives at the scene and the guide goes to seek a cop to help with the clearly deranged man, who is now investigating the floor for a trapdoors. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor is tinkering with some machine that will help them fight against the Daleks if they do indeed catch up with them. Barbara announces that they have again landed, this time on a late 19th century sailing ship. Barbara and Ian emerge to take a look around, and Barbara enthusiastically checks her surroundings as she is a keen ocean goer. Ian, however, is less than thrilled about their new surroundings and goes back inside to the TARDIS before his seasickness begins to take hold. As she looks around, Barbara is accosted by the first mate who accuses her of being a stowaway despite her protestations. Vicky sneaks out of the TARDIS and knocks the first mate unconscious from a hiding spot above them but it hides her view of the approaching Ian who she is also knocks unconscious thinking him to be another sailor. The two women rush back into the TARDIS and take off just as the first mate regains consciousness. He sounds the alarm and all the crew are called to search for the stowaway. The Dalek time machine arrives and one of the Daleks emerges causing the crew to jump overboard in terror as they think it is an evil sea legend. The Daleks search the now empty ship for any sign of the TARDIS. They try to apprehend one of the remaining crew members for questions, but he jumps overboard, followed by one of the Daleks. They retreat to their time machine to continue the pursuit, leaving the now abandoned ship to continue its voyage, the name of it which is revealed to be the Mary Celeste. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor announces that while trying evasive manoeuvres as they travel through the vortex, coupled with the fact that each time they land, the gap between them and the Daleks is steadily decreasing and is now currently at 8 minutes. Episode 4. Journey into Terror The TARDIS arrives at its next location, the entrance hall of a spooky looking castle. 
Barbara is not too keen on their new surroundings, but Ian touts his defensive merits that will aid them against the Daleks. As they are talking, a giant bat swoops over them, and Vicky suggests that it could be a vampire bat. The Doctor doesn't believe that to be the case, as they are indigenous to South America, but the architecture of their surroundings is akin to Central Europe. He suggests that they look around to see if there's anything that can help them against the Daleks, but a lightning storm outside, coupled with the eeriness of their surroundings, unnerves Barbara and Vicky, who decide to stay with the TARDIS while Ian and the Doctor look around. After they leave, Barbara decides to put on a brave face and suggests to Vicky that they look around to see what they can find. They investigate a fireplace designed to look like the face with a gaping mouth but step back with, when the eyes move. They next look at a large wooden box but stop briefly when they hear sinister laughter. They open it to discover it empty and begin to laugh at their fears when a skeleton lands on them from the roof above. Ian and the Doctor are investigating the second floor of the castle when Ian sees a ghostly figure ahead of him. He urges the Doctor to rejoin the others but he shows Ian a secret laboratory he has just discovered. Inside they see a covered figure lying on a surgical table and when they approach it, the figure rises revealing itself to be a version of Frankenstein's monster. They flee and make their way back to the women as the monster resumes its position. Barbara and Ian have their own run-in with a supernatural figure when a man suddenly appears and introduces himself as Count Dracula before disappearing just as quickly. Barbara goes to investigate the area from which she appeared and when she turns to talk to Vicky she finds her gone. Suddenly, a deranged-looking woman appears on the balcony above her and shrieks at Barbara, who retreats to the wall. The wall is in fact a trap, and it rotates into a new area, taking Barbara with it. The Doctor voices a theory to Ian that their location is the type of place you'd expect to be in nightmares. He says it is almost as if it was given physical form due to the beliefs of millions of people. Ian asks, will the Daleks be able to find him so, if that is the case, to which the Doctor delightedly tells him no. They return downstairs to find the girls missing and decide that they must have gone upstairs to look for them, so they decide to go back to the second floor. Moments after they leave though, the Doctor's theory is shattered as the Dalek time machine lands in the entranceway. A search team disembarks and sets out to locate the travellers. One of them attempts to corner Ian and the Doctor as they search in the laboratory again, but they manage to trap it in a cage, allowing them to escape. Frankenstein's monster wakes up again and approaches the Dalek, shrugging off its blasts before tearing it apart. Downstairs, the Doctor and Ian reunite with Vicky and Barbara, but before either party can explain what they experienced, several Daleks appear. Just as it seems all hope is lost, Count Dracula reappears, distracting the Daleks long enough for the travellers to make a dash for the TARDIS. Vicky, however, stays behind to call out a warning to Dracula, who is likewise unaffected by the Daleks' weaponry, and is left behind as the TARDIS takes off. She witnesses Frankenstein's monster appear and attack another Dalek, and she uses his appearance to escape into the Dalek time machine. The Daleks retreat and resume their pursuit of the TARDIS, with neither party realising that they have actually arrived at a horror-themed amusement park with robotic attractions. In the TARDIS, the Doctor is working on a piece of equipment he hopes to use against the Daleks, and conversing with Ian about their chances of success. Barbara comes in with refreshments, and it is then that the group realise that Vicky is missing. The Doctor blames himself, but the others say that they are just as much to blame. Barbara asks if there is any way that they can go back, but the Doctor reminds her that due to the faulty navigation system on the TARDIS, they cannot go back to the same location twice for fear of costing their own time stream. He says that even with their help, it could take months to repair the device. Ian then suggests that if they can capture the Daleks' time machine, then maybe they can go back and look for Vicky. They are all in agreement that when they next land, they will fight to gain access to the Dalek ship or die in the attempt. The TARDIS lands and they go outside to see that they have landed in a dense swamp. 
with little time until the Daleks arrive, they go and survey the area to come up with a battle plan. On the Dalek ship, one of the Daleks announces that the TARDIS is approaching the planet Mechanus as the others gather around a machine that they call a reproducer, a machine which is capable of recreating any form based on visual data being put into it. They select the Doctor as their subject and leave once the machine begins. After they leave, Vicky emerges from her hiding place and attempts to contact the TARDIS using a piece of radio equipment, but it is to no avail. She then investigates the reproducer and sees the outline of the copy of the Doctor taking shape. She hides again when the Daleks return to activate the copy of the Doctor, which is a perfect facsimile of him, and they instruct him to infiltrate the TARDIS and kill the Travellers. Episode 5. The Death of Doctor Who On the planet's surface, the Doctor, Ian and Barbara encounter a patch of strange fungoid-esque plants. As they investigate the area, they realise that the fungoids are sentient and watch as they are slowly surrounded. Their efforts to fight them off are useless, but just when it seems that they will be swarmed, a bright light shines above them, causing the fungoids to retreat. They follow a trail of similar lights in the hopes of meeting their mysterious saviour. The Daleks have landed on the planet, and the search teams are given orders that all life forms on the planet are to be treated as hostile and exterminated as such. They deployed the robotic copy, and it sets off through the swamp to follow its directive. Once it and the Daleks leave, Vicky sneaks out of the ship and sets off through the swamp. Unfortunately, she is attacked by one of the fungoids, but she manages to escape. The others come to the end of the trail of lights, which leads them into a strange cave formation. Inside it, they find some ad hoc weaponry that looks like it was crafted to fight off the fungoids. Ian and Barbara are delighted as they can use the cave entrance as a choke point and pick off the fungoids and the Daleks one by one as they attempt to enter. The Doctor reveals, though, that the device he crafted can't be used in an enclosed space as it would affect them as well. Ian suggests maybe disabling the lights to force the Daleks and the fungoids to potentially eliminate each other and begin to search for the power cables. Meanwhile, Vicky arrives at the TARDIS, but is forlorn when she realises that there is no one there. A fungoid closes in on her and she screams in despair. Thankfully, the others overhear this and Ian and the Doctor rush out to investigate. As they leave though, the robotic Doctor enters. It tells Barbara that Ian is dead, but she refuses to believe it and suggests that maybe he is hurt instead. The copy says that maybe they should take a second look together, and they leave. Not long after they leave, the Doctor and Ian return, carrying the unconscious Vicky with them. They find Barbara missing and Ian goes to look for her whilst the Doctor tends to Vicky. When she wakes up though, she recoils in fear, as she is not sure whether he is the real Doctor or the copy. Ian returns and she realises that she is safe and proceeds to tell them about the Doctor's doppelganger. They realise that the only reason Barbara would have left the cave was if she was with someone that she knew and Ian rushes to find her. Barbara is going frustrated with the copy's reluctance to help her look for Ian, but she hears Ian calling for her and she delightedly turns to face the copy, only to be attacked by it. Ian arrives to help, but he is easily outmatched by the copy's strength and then it flees into the swamp. When they return to the cave, they are faced with a conundrum as both the doctor and the copy arrive at the same time. They are unsure which is the copy, but the choice is taken out of their hands when one of the doctors goes to attack the other. Ian fights the attacker and is goaded on by the other, who urges him to finish his opponent off with a rock. Barbara and Vicky realise that Ian is fighting the real Doctor, when one of them calls Vicky Susan by accident, and they stop Ian before he kills the Doctor. The copy attempts to flee, but the Doctor stops it and engages it in combat. Just when it seems like he will be defeated, the Doctor imitates a Dalek's voice, which stops the copy dead in its tracks, thereby allowing the Doctor to disable it. Back in the swamp, the Daleks have located the TARDIS, but are under constant attack from the fungoids. 
one of the Daleks says that they have lost contact with the copy and they decide to bring a full-scale search at daybreak when the fungoids will be less of a nuisance. The travellers go to sleep for the night as they decide that there is not much that they can do during the night and hope that daylight will be able to help them. As they sleep, a camera descends and observes them. The following morning, the doctor is the first to wake up and as he surveys the area, he sees a fantastic city off in the distance. He wakes the others up so they can investigate, but they are stopped when several Daleks appear, surrounding their position. They retreat into the cave to plan how to escape as they can't use any weaponry. Ian suggests that maybe the doctor could pretend to be the copy, but Vicky points out that they control it and would likely spot the difference. The doctor overhears Ian's suggestion and acts upon it and leaves the cave, initially being ignored by the others. The ruse doesn't work though and the doctor barely escapes back into the cave. With no other options, the doctor tells the others to stand as he intends to use the piece of equipment despite the potential consequences. Before he can do anything though, a section of the wall opens and a large spherical robot emerges from it. It introduces itself as a mechanoid and urges them to come with it, an offer which they agree to. Episode 6 The Planet of Decision The travellers join the mechanoid in the chamber behind the wall which turns out to be an elevator. The Daleks storm the cave but it is too late as the walls slide shut cutting them off from their prey. They send back a request to the time machine for equipment that they can use to cut into the elevator shaft so they can continue their pursuit. In the lift the mechanoid ignores the questions of the travellers and when the lift opens it commands them to follow. The others see that they have arrived at a walkway that leads to a fantastic city that the doctor saw earlier. The mechanoid instructs them to enter a room and once they enter it the door shuts behind them. The room is quite large and contains some sort of jungle gym and a bunk. They discuss how unusual the mechanoids are and the doctor points out that on the way they saw no signs of any organic life. Before he can say more, a dishevelled bearded man appears and expresses his joy at the fact that they are real. He is too excited to make any sense with what he is saying but he gives his name as Stephen Taylor, an astronaut from Earth. He says that he has been in the city for the last two years and that they are now all prisoners of the mechanoids. He explains that they were originally robots sent from Earth 50 years beforehand to prepare landing sites for new colonies. Unfortunately, Earth became embroiled in a widespread intergalactic war and the mechanoids were forgotten about. They carried on with their original directive and created a city at the landing site, but have gone no further. Stephen says that they now wait to receive further instructions, but will only respond to pre-programmed codes to prevent other forces using them. Meanwhile, the Daleks have broken into the elevator shaft and begin preparations to assault the city. Reports come in on the Mechanoids' defensive capabilities, and it appears that they will put up a tough fight, but they carry on in order to fill out the directive of the Supreme Dalek. Ian notices that the jungle gym, which Stephen said he built, extends to the roof, but Stephen says it can't be used as a route to, of escape as it is 1,500 foot above ground level. The Doctor, Ian and Stephen climb up to the top and they see that there are no guards up there. Stephen says the mechanoids don't go up there as there is no reason for them to patrol it. He returns to the girls and after he leaves, Ian notices a length of cable that he thinks could reach the floor below. He and the doctor go back to the others and tell them of their plan. Barbara is sceptical as it is a long way to go down but the decision is made for them as the Daleks assault the city. As they leave, the doctor rigs up his device which explodes after one of the Daleks contacts it, destroying it and immobilising another one. Unfortunately, it also sets the cell on fire which begins to spread throughout the city. Up on the roof things are further complicated when Vicky's extreme vertigo stops her from going anywhere near the cable. Ian blindfolds her and wraps the cable around her so they can lower her safely to the ground first. Smoke starts to billow up from the cell below and Stephen lets go of the cable 
saying that he needs to retrieve his teddy bear mascot before it burns. The rope slips from the other's grip due to the extra strain and Vicky plummets towards the ground below. Stephen goes back into his cell and witnesses as the Mechanoids and the Daleks battle each other. Much of the city is destroyed in the fight as the two forces seem to be evenly matched and inflict a large number of casualties on each side. Back on the roof, the others manage to grab the rope and safely lower Vicky to the ground. The others go down after her and, and the Doctor and Barbara explain what happened to Stephen. Ian joins them shortly but ushers them away as he says the cable is on fire and the city is starting to collapse. They make their way back to the TARDIS, avoiding the fungoids as they do so. They come across the Dalek time machine and Ian goes back inside to investigate it. After giving the others a little scare, he comes out and tells them that it is completely empty. The Doctor marvels at how precise the machine was as it was able to follow them perfectly and says it has just much potential to go anywhere as the TARDIS does. Vicky offers to show them around inside and they all agree. Barbara stops Ian before they go in and points out that with it they may finally be able to go home as they both realise how homesick they've become. Stephen, meanwhile, has managed to escape the city and is making his way through the swamp, also avoiding the fungoids and looking for the others. The Doctor emerges from the time machine furious, refusing to help Ian or Barbara and saying that they are idiots for suggesting they use the machine to get home. Tensions between him and the duo flare up as they say how they want to belong somewhere again and even though they will always cherish their time together, they miss their old lives. The Doctor still refuses but only relents when Vicky talks him around, saying that it is up to them to make the decision despite the potential risks involved. He takes them into the machine and shows them how to work it. Ian and Barbara arrive back at Foreman's scrapyard and Ian goes outside to investigate. He sees a tax disc on a nearby car and says that they have arrived in 1965, two years out from their own time. They set the machine to self-destruct and then flee the scene, looking up at the sky and thanking the Doctor for their time together. They joyously visit various sites around London, such as Trafalgar Square and Hyde Park. They are shocked when they see an old-style police box at one point, but notice that it is actually the real deal. They board a bus and discuss how they would explain their long absence, but they are interrupted by the bus conductor, who is confused by them not knowing about the current fare and laughing about it. All of these events are observed by Vicky and the Doctor through the time-space visualiser. Vicky is happy that they got to go home safely, and the Doctor morosely says that he will miss them. The TARDIS then dematerializes and continues on its journey through the vortex. End of the story. So now that's the story recap done and dusted, we're going to go over to Trish for some trivia notes. Thanks, buddy. So, this is a Dalek story. So I'll give you two guesses who the writer was. Uh, Stephen King. No. Uh, Terry Nation. Yes. Yeah. Um, as per usual, Dalek story written by Terry Nation. However, on the DVD for this story, the director, who's Richard Martin, who I'll discuss again in a second, basically said that Terry came up with the story, but the script was largely Richard and Dennis Spooner, who was the script editor. Apparently, Terry tended to think more in ideas rather than the written word. <laughs> <laughs> in many ways um, there were several changes made from Terry's original proposal in the original storyline the TARDIS crew would witness Shakespeare discussing the possibility of allowing Francis Bacon to use his name on Bacon's plays and they would also see a speech by Winston Churchill when wandering through the sands Ian and Vicky would see the Iridian city 
and Ian and Barbara wouldn't return home to Earth at the end. C- can I have that version, please? <laughs> Maybe in another uh, alternate reality, it's there, and you're happy because they never left ever. The director, as I mentioned for this story, is Richard Martin. We've discussed Richard several times before. He also directed several episodes of The Daleks, the first episode of The Edge of Destruction, the entirety of The Dalek Invasion of Earth, and the entirety of The Web Planet. This is Richard's last directorial credit for Doctor Who. I have a question for you, Paddy. How did you find the Iridians and the way they moved? Um... Uh, so I didn't actually mind the Iridians. The one thing that kind of got to me about the Iridians was watching those two episodes. I felt uncomfortably warm. I was like, I actually had, I was like, God, I need a drink. <laughs> so Richard said on the DVD how much A, he hated the costumes he had to force the guys to wear. Oh, wow. He himself says their costumes were a bit shit. And he describes them as a really bad ballet costume. The second <laughs> yeah, thing is very... that he... They are very leotardy. Yeah, they're basically leotard over a pair of tights with some weird, like, seaweed on them. Hmm. He also said that while the two guys who made, who played the main Iridians did an amazing job, and he really could not commend them highly enough, he wished he'd had more time to make them look more alien. Bearing in mind, Richard hmm. also directed The Web Planet. Oh, wow. So he wanted them to be more alien in their movements and things. We get to see a little bit of it. They kind of do a thing with their hands that makes it look like they're treading water. Hmm. But he wanted there to be more of that. Richard was really big into that type of stuff. Well, I suppose, yeah, because like with the with the facial makeup, like in this one, like the Iridians are very human looking, whereas in Web Planet, they did a great job on the Monoptera and on the Optera to make them look as insectile as possible. Yeah, and even if you didn't like the movements, at least they tried. You know, they tried to make them seem mm. other. The other thing that Richard wasn't a big fan of was the fact that he had very little budget. Mm. He had, well, he had like the normal budget, but because of what they wanted to do, there was very little spare change. So a lot of the camera work that Richard's stories are really good for, he couldn't do in this one. So you can probably tell when you're watching it if you compare it to the Dalek Invasion of Earth or the Web Planet. The camera is a bit more static and it does a bit more normal movement. There was just too much happening on set and he just couldn't do like the crane work that he likes to do and all this other stuff. Hmm. This is Richard's last directorial credit for Doctor Who. And I'm actually really sad about that because he's such an amazing and imaginative director. I would have loved to have seen more from him, particularly in later seasons. Like imagine a story that he directed in colour. Oh, yeah. That would have been... I think it would have been amazing. And like when the the bud when the budget for Doctor Who would have been a bit more as well because you know of it's slowly reaching as we said last week uh, when we were talking about Mervyn Pinfield um, it's slowly reaching his uh, it's you know peak of popularity. Yeah. Um, the air date for the story was the twenty second of May to the twenty sixth of June, nineteen sixty five. This is the only appearance in Doctor Who of the Mechanoids. Because they were just horrible <laughs> to manage. The men inside them had severe issues controlling them. And as you can imagine, they didn't actually fit through doors. So they were kind of one and done. 
I've seen a lot of people, um, especially on like the Facebook page that we're members of, uh, actually kind of calling out for, for the mechanoids to return in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I think it would be interesting. Though my only thing with them is that like you'd have to arrive on Mechanus in the 50 years between when they first arrived and at this point. Because the whole point was that these mechanoids went off script, for lack of a better word. Well, we'll, say, we'll save that for when we have the, the character discussion. Because like, obviously there's a yeah. bit to go into about the mechanoids. Yeah. So Paddy, I'm going to hand over to you. Do you want to share your trivia point about the Beatles? Right. So... Now, I can't remember what television show it's on. I don't think it's the Ed Sullivan show. But the see, the scene where they're watching the Beatles play Ticket to Ride, it's the only existing footage of that performance. So we're very lucky that this episode of Doctor Who exists because otherwise we would have lost two things. We would have lost that Beatles performance and this story. Yeah. So an interesting thing to add on to that is apparently the Beatles were originally planned to appear as old men performing in the 21st century but apparently this was vetoed by their manager which given the fact that we're currently in the 21st century and not all of the Beatles are still with us maybe that was a good choice although one thing I will say um, Vicky is able to predict the future because she says that she uh, went to their memorial museum now, I think she said in London, but there, but in the fact that oh, it's Liverpool. Well, I, I've been yeah. to the one in Liverpool, um, but it's amazing that the show was able to predict that there one day would be a memorial museum for the Beatles. Yeah, it's sort of like that Simpsons thing of the Simpsons did it first, this yeah. time Doctor Who did it first. Well, Doctor Who does a lot of stuff first. We're looking at you, Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so, the scenes in the last episode with Ian and Barbara celebrating their return to London were actually made as part of the production block for the Time Meddler and so the director of these sequences was actually Douglas Campfield rather than Richard Martin. During rehearsal the three fungoid costumes were given nicknames to avoid confusion. Oh please say they're like Dewey and Louie. (laughs) These are brilliant. They were Fungoid Fred, Toadstool Taffy and Mushroom Malone. I freaking love it. Fungoid Fred just makes me want to sing Right Said Fred, but see like a, a fungoid version of it. And Mushroom Malone sounds like a really bad gangster. <laughs> or like, can you imagine the song Molly Malone, but Mushroom Malone? <laughs> it's like some like, guy who just gets high on shrooms. <laughs> uh, crying toadstools and I don't know, another form of mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> Taking it down a peg. Mm. I maybe should have ordered these slightly differently. Um, This story does have a morbid first for Doctor Who. Mm. It is the first story of Doctor Who to include the death of a child. That being the baby that the woman held in her arms when she jumped from the Marie Celeste. Because obviously we know no bodies were ever found from the Marie Celeste. Yeah. And while you could make an argument that you don't see the child actually die... I, I have issues with that sequence. And yeah, so do I. For, yeah, which we'll discuss when we get to the overall thing. But yeah, that is a very morbid sequence. Guest cast? So, yes, on to our guest cast. So, we have a robot doctor in this story. Mm-hmm. Now, your recap was amazing, Paddy, but we have to be a little bit honest. 
it is kind of obvious which one's the robot at certain points in the story. Which I do not understand. I, I really don't understand. Yeah, they made an interesting choice that anytime where... I kind of describe it as where the Doctor isn't the focal point. And that that's not even true. But at several points, they had the robot body double, which obviously they were going to have to have for the fight anyway, right? Yeah. But they had the robot body double be the Doctor that we see, but they have William Hartnell's voice over him. Yeah. Which just comes across weird. The name of that actor is Edmund Warwick. And this isn't the first time we've seen him, nor is it the first time we've seen him doubling for William Hartnell. We previously saw him as Darius in The Keys of Marinus. That's the man in the screaming jungle with all oh, the yeah. traps set around. And he also doubled for Hartnell when he was injured on the Dalek invasion of Earth. His other acting credits include The Adventures of Sir Lancelot, which starred William Russell, The Buccaneers, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and... Zetkars. Yes. Doctor Who Bingo is a go. I also realised that last week there's only so many ways you can alternate saying Zedcars, so I think we should just go with Zedcars. <laughs> yeah, we'll just go with the name of the actual show. Like I said, I think it was an interesting choice to have him... Like, I get in the scenes where there's the two of them. Yeah. That makes sense. But mm-hmm. when it's just, quote-unquote, the Doctor, I, I don't get that. But anyway, um, I think he did really well, in fairness. Um, and Edmund sadly passed away in 1989. Next, we have Stephen Taylor, who's played by Peter Purvis. I mentioned Peter in a previous story um, where he was considered for a role and it was Richard Martin again. And Richard Martin kind of went, yeah, no, this isn't good enough for you. So Richard hired Peter to play the Alabama man in episode three. So the the Southern gentleman, who's very polite. When Verity Lambert saw him, she insisted that he be brought back to play Stephen. And Richard was like, we can't have him playing two different people in the same story. To which Verity said, why not? She basically said that you don't waste a talented actor like that and to bring him back. Yeah, just stick a beer in him. He'll be grand. Yeah. Which I think, I mean, in fairness, you know, you could say that maybe that guy from Alabama was like Stephen Taylor's ancestor. Yeah. Maybe. We, it, you know. we, it's not like it hasn't been done in who at other times granted no in the far future yeah I wonder if this is the only time that within a story we have a um, story companion so someone who teams up with the doctor playing do, two different people Um, in the context of story I think it is in the context of people playing companions and other characters you have Freema Adjaman who played her. Oh, yeah, we, we have that happen. We have that happen a lot, but I think within yeah. one contained story. Yeah, within the one contained time. story, I think, no, I think it's the first time. Yeah, maybe the only time. Possibly. We'll, dis- we'll discover it as we move on. <laughs> yes. Okay, now we're on to the sad part. So, Ian and Barbara. Ready, guys. <laughs> Ian and Barbara leaving. So. It was actually during production of The Web Planet that William Russell decided to go. Um, he felt his enthusiasm for the series had waned and he was in need of a change. Um, in the DVD for this story, William basically said that you know staying on one project for over a year 
was quite rare for him. So coming up on two years, he was getting a bit restless. You know, which you imagine as an actor, you want to play lots of different people and he was doing the same thing for two years. It was during production of the Space Museum that Jacqueline Hill decided that she was leaving the series. Now, I can't find a specific reason why. But I get the sense it was the same as William Russell. That she just Hmm. wanted a change and wanted to try something else. Um, The way William describes it was during the Space Museum... I imagine he was telling her that he was thinking of leaving and she was like, yeah, I'm I'm thinking of leaving too. The thing to bear in mind, though, is that though they were only on the show for two seasons and not even because they missed the last show of or the last story of the season, you need to remember that the 16 stories they appeared in equate to 87 episodes of television. Is it 87 or 77? 87. No, no, you're right. No, it's 77. You're right. Yeah. So it equates to 77 episodes of television. They were working for like 44 weeks a year. And just when you were saying there about like, you know, William Russell's enthusiasm waning, like we've seen, you know, certain, we've seen actors in certain franchises, be they TV shows or movies, that their disillusionment or their disenfranchisement with the character, it's visible on the screen. Yeah. And fair dues to the guys. Now, I suppose they got lucky in one sense because the, you know, he decided to leave after the web planet and the very next story, half of it is missing. But um, it never comes across in his performance. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of them leaving, you know, while it's very upsetting, um, you know, it. you can kind of understand it. They've done 87 episodes. So that's a, that's a long... 77 to have 77 I have 87 my notes are going to keep saying it. I'm going to change them because I'm going to refer back to it later yeah. yeah so they have they've done 77 episodes that's that's a long stint to do yeah the doctor's reaction to them leaving wasn't just good acting Hartnell had become very close to both William Russell and Jacqueline Hill and he was very sad to see them go William Russell describes it that you know the anger that we see the doctor showing when they're asking him to bring him back again that was you know part of it's obviously Hartnell's amazing acting Hmm. but William genuinely didn't understand why they would want to leave he was like you know we have this good thing going we have a good group of people together why why do you want to go and apparently William Russell and Jacqueline Hill they had a really hard time explaining to them explaining to him how they they wanted to move on and, and do different things yeah, like it's, I think um, when we get to the end of William Hartnell's run, uh, we would de- I'll definitely make the recommendation to watch uh, An Adventure in Time and Space, uh, which, the, which is the kind of the re- retelling of the start of Doctor Who. And I think this sequence is, along with a lot of other sequences, it, you, get, you get an insight into what William Hartnell's reaction was like during this time. So... Yeah. It's only natural, I think, that it would bleed into his performance a small bit. Yeah. Let's just end this section on a slightly funnier note, right? Because others are going to start bawling my eyes out, right? Okay. So, uh, back in 2018, you may remember that there was a Doctor Who Twitch stream. Yes. Where they played, like, every episode of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And between each episode, they had a promotion for basically what was happening. And one of the 
sections included in that promo clip was Ian exclaiming, it's London 1965. (laughs) And so this being played between every single episode, it has now become a meme in its own right. (laughs) 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 Which I just love. And anywhere that you go and see anyone like reacting to this story or any comments about this story... It, like everyone in the comments is just like don't forget it's London 1965 apparently it just it became one of those things that was repeated so many times it just became almost incoherent and fans just latched onto it and made a meme out of it <laughs> uh, Doctor Who fans you're a crazy crazy bunch <laughs> So that was some interesting trivia on the chase, but now it's on to the meat and bones of time traveling team. And that is our character discussion. So Paddy, I will hand it over to you. What are your thoughts on the doctor in the chase? Um, So to paraphrase a future incarnation of the good doctor, I don't want them to go. Um, This was a, overall an amazing performance from William Hartnell again it's like these 16 stories I know not it's not to disparage what comes afterwards but for me this is the golden era of William Hartnell as the the doctor and this is like he does great like there's some really good uh, comedic moments you know with with him like in Ian in the haunted house you know which is like the whole you go first routine (laughs) um then there was like the the thing with the the robot doctor which is like you know no i'm the real one no i'm the real one um but again like i think the real like throughout however good the story is the real meat of the performance is those final five minutes where it's almost like the five stages of uh, grief you know like there's like denial there's anger um what is it then there's bargaining, bargaining the bargaining depression and acceptance and it's kind of weird like, because like obviously you know, Ian and Barbara they're still there and they're still alive but I, I think what he he tries to do is I think he tries to maybe like you know what's the word over elaborate on how potentially dangerous the Dalek time machine is in order to maybe try and trick them into staying even more or even longer yeah and it's funny like that you know like Fuzzy, we go back eight stories, you know, to the Reign of Terror, and he's all set to, you know, boot them out the door. Whereas now it's, you know, uh, I don't want you to leave. And a small part of me has to wonder is that because they're his last connection to Susan? Because, like, I think that's going to be part of it. Yeah, because, like, when it'll be just him and Vicky, like, he can't remember, he can't say, oh, remember when we, you know, because she wasn't there. Yeah, but no, I think the Doctor is great in this story. Like, my one of my favorite sequences of this whole story is that is at the very start, when like you know they're at the time space visualizer, and you just see him there dancing around, and like when he gives out to Barbara, and he's just like, "Oh, now you've squashed my favorite Beatles." <laughs> I love that line. That's very good. And it it start again like this started a trend that, like in in a lot of the media. Or in a lot of like you know B Day Big Finish or 
uh, books or whatever, the Doctor is a huge Beatles fan. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, like I actually, one of the first Doctor Who books I ever read, uh, it has the fourth Doctor leading like the crew of like an 18th century sailing ship in a chorus of octopuses garden <laughs> yeah it, it, it's like it, you, you can just imagine tom baker doing that but um yeah. no i i love the doctor in this one how about you yeah i think this is an amazing turnout for the doctor um we get to see him doing his science thing mm-hmm. trying to fix a time television which just quickly on the time telly right this yeah. thing is huge mm. and the monitor is tiny yeah like, what the hell? It was um, the 60s. <laughs> okay, sorry. 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 But yeah, so we see him fixing the time telly and also making a Dalek killing box thing. Which, whatever the hell that was. Which, to be fair, like, I think, again, his over, like, kind of, like, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it begins with an E, you know, where you kind of, you like, you emphasize something beyond, beyond what it actually is. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, exaggerate, exaggerate. Thank you. That's the word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think he's like a whole exaggeration of, you know, like this will take care of the Daleks. And then when it finally goes off, and like it takes out like two of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have a question for the doctor, though. Yeah. Doctor, when did you start calling Barbara Barb? <laughs> and either can you not call her Barb or can we see more of how you got to the point where you can call her Barb. Because yeah. no one calls her Barb except him and only in this story. Hey, Barb. <laughs> um, also, the directional instincts of a homing pigeon, my arse. Ah, uh, but that's just, you know, like, that's always just the doctor bluffing. Like, I even, like, if Ian had been there, again, it would have been bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> seriously though this was a great outing from Hartnell the double play as the two versions of the Doctor was fantastic as we said they do use the other actor mm-hmm. but whenever he's interacting but for the most part when he's interacting like, with Barbara mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that it is William Hartnell you know he does do it himself as well and the way he differentiated the voice between the two, it actually had me shouting at the screen. I'm like, it's so obvious which one's which. <laughs> but, you know, you could imagine that, like, if you put yourself in the situation, it maybe isn't quite as obvious because sometimes he can be very clipped in the way he speaks in general. So I think that was really, really great, like using different parts of the Doctor's personality to portray the robot. Mm-hmm. I think it was fantastic. His argument with Ian and Barbara when they want to leave, I think it's how he shows he cares. Yeah. You know, we've seen with this doctor that he's a bit crotchety, do you know? Mm-hmm. And he tends to bluster when he's upset. You know, if we believe him, there's only a 50-50 chance that they're going to make it. Anything could happen to them. And, you know, maybe it's the connection to Susan, but also, like, they've become his friends and he doesn't want them to go. And he's he's terrified. They go off in a Dalek time machine without him. You know, mm. What could happen? Now, I think there was a solution to that. Which is that he pilots said Dalek time machine. Drops them off. Yeah. And then pilots Dalek time machine back to get the TARDIS. Just an idea. Mm-hmm. But given his concerns about the Dalek technology. You know, his anger and frustration is quite understandable. 
But in the end, he sees reason and he lets them go. The thing that I've written down here about the doctor, and this is, I think, an important question. Because, you know, for our listeners' benefit, the next couple of months, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, I'm going into uncharted territory here. Um, I stopped watching Hartnell after Ian and Barbara left. So I don't know what's coming next. But for me, they were his moral compasses. And on top of that, so not only did they help him build his moral character, which is now what defines the Doctor. He got that from Ian and Barbara. The Doctor we see today wouldn't be who she is without Ian and Barbara. It just wouldn't have happened. And on top of that, like Barbara was his sounding board and she was never afraid to take him to task and to call him on his bullshit. While Ian helped him protect those he cared about and protected the doctor as well. So like the question that I have, now I have a little bit of an answer to this, obviously because I know future events, hence my reference to the 13th doctor. But the question that I would have if I had, not seen anything after this like up until the 13th doctor can he be the man he has become without them by his side or would he slip back to being to the man he was before i guess we'll just have to wait and find out now won't we yes so shall we move on Yes, if we move on to our companions, I would suggest that similar to what we did for Susan's departure, if we do Vicky and our story companion first, and then we double back around to Sounds good. Barb and Ian. Fucking Barb. <laughs> Barb and Ian, though. So, so Vicky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very polite and waiting for the other one to go first. Um, I can go first again if you want. Yeah, go on. Cool. So, who the fuck calls out a warning to Dracula? Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, just, no, fuck it, get out of there, leave. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, no, I honestly, I really like her in this episode. Um, like, she's her usual, like, kind of cheeky little self. You know, with the whole, you know, the, you know, like I didn't realize that you listen to classical music or the Beatles play classical music, and you just see this whole thing of hip and happening. Ian and Barbara are like, oh, thanks for making us feel old again. <laughs> um, but like, no, as like when she ends up on the Dalek ship, like she immediately tries to figure out how to work it so that she can contact the others and warn them, and but then she also knows like what the doctor is doing when it's like comes to the time space visualizer and she dumbs it down into who man speech are you okay <laughs> do you need time yeah i was just imagining vicky is a ferengi and my brain went off in a weird way who <laughs> oh, oh, man uh. um yeah i think you know once again in this story we see that vicky's boredom and her sense of adventure get her in trouble um Seriously, though, I fear for her and the Doctor without Ian and Barbara to keep them grounded. Because those two alone... Like, what the fuck? Like, there's no one there to rein them in. Mm. In all honesty, though, I really liked Vicky in the story. We get to see her as a kid, 
but we also get to see her intelligence and her ingenuity that we saw last week. Like you said, you know, she was on this Dalek ship. And first of all, she had the wherewithal to get on the ship in the first place. Yeah. As opposed to staying where she was. And then immediately she's trying to contact the TARDIS. And like that is her first thought is contacting them and letting them know where she is. It was very, very well done. I felt for her with the whole heights thing. I don't have a fear of heights. I'm fine with heights. I have a fear of descending from heights. You know, call it mild vertigo or whatever. So I completely understand her fear there. And can I just say, Doctor, blindfolding her was not going to make that any better. (laughs) Hence why she nearly dragged Barbara over the side of the fucking thing with her. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it would have been better if like they sent Barbara down first and let Vicky see it was fine Mm. and then set Vicky down after. Although given what happens and how quickly everyone has to descend after the fact, maybe that wouldn't have worked quite so well because Barbara would have fallen and that would have scared Vicky more. I I will say I think it was a smart idea to tie the rope around her and use her first because at least that way she can't let go of the rope. True. Though the way they did it, I fear for her internal organs. Oh, yeah. Um, Spider-Man inertia. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The important thing for me, though, is... A, like I said, we still see her being a fun kid. So she gets bored and she's trying to be like, you know, hey guys, play with me. Um, She still makes fun of Ian and Barbara for their age. (laughs) I'm going to miss that. Because Ian laughs it off, but Barbara always looks so fucking indignant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but where I think she really, you know, came to the fore was at the end. Hmm. Um, when she was the doctor's conscience and reminded him that, and you know, we see this, I joked about it at the beginning, you know, Ian and Barbara aren't like them. You know, they're willing to jump in, but the two of them also spent a month in Rome, sat on their asses, you know, adventure while they're willing to engage in it. They don't seek it out. That That's not who they are. Unlike the Doctor and Vicky, who, you know, the Doctor says to himself that Vicky's a lot like him. You know, always wanting to see what's over the next hill. Hmm. Ian and Barbara don't care. It's a hill. What the fuck do I want to go near the hill for? <laughs> so I like the fact that she points that out to him and, you know, reminds him that if they want to take the chance, then it's their choice. And the question that I would have for you is... What do you think it would have been like if it had been Susan and not Vicky in that situation? I think Susan would have probably begged him to stay. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 would, it would have gone very differently and I don't think it would have been as nice of a parting. If, if, if it was to be a parting. Yeah, I think she would have gotten very upset. Like, Vicky kind of accepted it that, like, this isn't their time and if mm. they want to go back to their time then that's their business i think susan would have been very upset at the idea of them leaving i think she would have begged them to stay i think in the end she would have come around to it but it would have been a difficult conversation to say the least exactly just to say the least <laughs> so then we have our guest companion i suppose we could call him mm-hmm Poor, poor Stephen. Seriously, the poor fecker is alone in a zoo for two years 
And then in the space of about 20 minutes, he gets given this amazing chance of freedom only for them to leave without him. Yeah. And like the first time, like, so my first thoughts when it comes to Stephen are, Wilson, Wilson. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, remember the first time I watched this, uh, like when he went back for the teddy bear, I was like, you stupid mother. Um, bec- but then I realized that, you know, like, I think when I watched it the first time, I was just so focused on the fact that it was Barbara and Ian's leaving story. So when I went back and I watched it this time, I realized that like he's been alone in for two years and that teddy bear was his, like, it, w- it was essentially his Wilson. And yeah. going back for it, yeah, it's, it's understandable. And it's like, one thing I will say is that when I first saw him, I was so glad that they didn't do like a stupid, like delusional prisoner of war angle. Like, you know, the the fifth column from the Sensorites. Yeah. No, I'm glad that like he is like for the most part he's in the all together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um Hi Fi the, the the bear yeah. whose name is Hi Fi um is adorable and I want mm. one. Mm. And I totally understand going back for him because yeah. if I'm ever going somewhere and I forget my teddy bear, I turn around and drive home and get her. Yep. So I think I've been there for one of those. The time she got lost in like transport on the way to Seattle, I was very very sad. Oh jeez, I didn't even know that. The yeah. one thing I will say though is that like when you're on about like you know they they left him, I like how that his fate is left vague, because if he ever turns up again in the future, it'd be very interesting to see his interactions with the Doctor and Vicky, or the Doctor and whoever he, the Doctor whoever he's traveling with, because it was like it's like a whole thing of you know you left me to die. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be, that would be a very interesting thing because I'll get to this more in, in the in the overall discussion, but they just left him. Hmm. And to be honest, they kind of forgot him, which is unexpected for this group. You know, um, I'll talk in a second about like Barbara and like always wanting to save everybody. Hmm. But I mean, like I said, they gave him hope for the first time in two years. They used his only means of escape, which was they used the rope. Mm. And then they fucking left him there without even checking. Like, the Daleks were destroyed. They could have gone back to look. Well, I suppose maybe Ian answered that when, like, because the rope catches fire after Ian is on the way down. And Ian does point out that the city is completely engulfed in flames and is being destroyed so and the fact that they were in a very like you know with the fungoids around them maybe yeah, it was but an internal inter- so get a fucking flashlight yeah true true i just think poor steven yeah i think it was maybe more of an internalized decision like the to kind of beat it rather than or like kind of it's kind of hard to put into words like i do kind of see where you're coming i do see where you're coming from all right with the fact that it does seem very out of character but I think uh, they tried to answer that with the writing of the whole thing of like the city is being completely destroyed by fire and the war and the rope burnt down after them. Yeah, I suppose. So on to our dynamic duo. Mm-hmm. Who do you want to do first? Uh, so <laughs> not we... <Malik>. Yeah, <laughs> that's for our team after dark. <laughs> uh. I think we did 
Barbara first last week. So how about we do Ian first this week? Okay. Okay. So uh, my thoughts on Ian are we get to see in this story why Ian and I are so very much alike. We both like the Beatles. We're both fantastic dancers. Uh, and as also like we know is well you and I know and hopefully our listeners don't know I'm the type of idiot that think it's funny to scare their friends by doing a Dalek impersonation when searching the ship yeah yeah, yeah you are <laughs> <laughs> exactly I will say one thing though right yeah I've seen you dance and I have danced with you yeah you are a much better dancer than <laughs> Ian I'm sorry Ian the dad dancing has got to go <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, I I was just trying to you know big him up. I small I suppose a small bit. <laughs> like, he, like I really like Ian in the story. Again, I I think it's, I think it's because it's their last story. It could have gone. It, it could have gone either way. We know whether like it depends on how they were written out, but I really enjoyed him in this one. There's one thing though that it did kind of. It had me like raising my eyebrow or, like, or scratching my head a small bit. Was that. We've seen Ian be very rational at other points in time. Yeah. So I'm amazed that he didn't try. Like I know, like that when they try to figure out which doctor was the real doctor, like one of them attacks the other one. So that's how the fight starts. But I'm amazed that rather than try and continue on with the fight, Ian didn't try and break it up and come up with some way in which to be able to figure out which one's which, because being goaded by one of them to cave in the skull of the the supposed imposter it seems very off for Ian to kind of follow through on yeah it does a little bit I think it's more sort of <laughs> okay I, I'm going to you know ship my answer here okay. Um, the robot doctor tried to kill Barbara True. fuck you robot doctor <laughs> you're only a robot yep yeah, no, it it just felt kind of like with that with that context, it all makes more sense. But like when it comes to, when it would come to potentially hurting his friend, I would have thought that like, there'd be a small bit more of a he try and outsmart him, like you know he try and trick him. Do yeah, I think ro- because they jumped into the because they jumped into the fight so quickly. Hmm. Like I think had they had a chance to properly talk to both of them. Yeah. Ian would have been able to figure it out. But it kind of jumps into the fight between them so quickly. Mm. And you have the robot doctor seeming to protect Barbara and Vicky by pulling them off to one side. That you're like, okay, well, clearly this is, this, you know, the doctor would protect Barbara and Vicky. Um, maybe. I don't know. I think, yeah, it was written weird. Yeah. It was written weird. Also, please stop being knocked out by your friends. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Like, the dude spends... Like, I'm convinced he spends the second half of the story going around with a concussion. I mean, he's been hit on the head twice in one story. Poor thing, like. There is one thing, actually, that I didn't like. Though, thankfully, she gets her own back on him. Mm. It was a bit harsh of him to call Vicky a little fool when she didn't immediately run away from the Meyer Beast. Like, mm. Ian, what the fuck? Yeah... Like I don't think he's ever like he he ever called like Susan a little fool or like made some sort of comment like that. No, but he's never made any comment like that up until now. 
Although I am glad that she gets her own back by calling him a nit later on. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder if it's just the way their dynamic has kind of grown and evolved. But it it seemed very fucking out of the blue. And very not Ian. Yeah. But maybe that's just the dynamic that the two of them have. You know, they're playful and whatever. But it seemed a bit odd. Yeah. It's, I suppose, kind of like when... um when we were like working together and someone passed a comment about the way that you make fun of me and I was like no no that's cool it's our thing <laughs> yeah yeah for everyone's benefit I'm really nice to Patty I don't make fun of him all the time <laughs> just sometimes just yeah <laughs> just when he when he uh, doesn't when... pass mustard <laughs> thanks <laughs> <laughs> uh, I missed a golden opportunity there to make you look like the fool but no I'm too honest <laughs> So you would never mo- <laughs> you wouldn't dare. So moving on to Barbara, I suppose. Yes. So Barbara has another skill to add to her resume. So she's a total badass, mm-hmm. which is a given. Yeah. She's a history teacher. She's a great storyteller. She's mm-hmm. an amazing cook. And yeah. she can also apparently make clothes. Seriously, is there anything this woman can't do? You also forgot her BS, uh, her BS in BS, <laughs> like her amazing <laughs> ability to bullshit anyone. Well, I said she's a great storyteller. That was my nicer way of putting that yeah. particular skill. <laughs> um, oh, and she loves boats. Who knew? Yeah. But seriously, like, is there nothing this woman can't do? One of the things I've always loved about Barbara, and again, it, this is one of the benefits there are drawbacks to the way we've done this. This is one of the benefits of us watching these stories in order. One of the things I've always loved is the little side comments that we get from Barbara. Usually when she's talking to herself. Or the little eye roll, the little sassy bits that we get of Barbara on the side. And she has two in this story and they're actually two of my favourites from her. The first is when the doctor is singing and she hears the noise of the visualizer and she's like, what's that awful noise? And he gets really offended. He's like, don't call my singing awful. And her response was, no, not that awful noise. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, brilliant. And the second is, uh, you know, I spent a lot of last week discussing her cardigan. And in this story, Ian, once again, asks for her cardigan r.i.p barbara's cardigans and her response is just like she's taking it off but she's like oh no not again and i'm, I'm like i think that's why she left he's like fuck this shit my clothes and i are out <laughs> oh it's it's so good though she has all these little sassy moments that are freaking hilarious i love them hmm. one thing that we get to see a bit of in this story and we've seen it little bits throughout the stories i mentioned that like she's the doctor's sounding board and stuff is I'm really regretting that we don't get to see her pairing up with the doctor more like the two of them sunbathing was cute and I do wonder who brought out the blanket and the pillows because they didn't just lie down on the sand they were prepared <laughs> I'd, I'd say she did and he, I, like which one would have gone oh great idea my dear or something like that yeah um I want I wanted to see more of those two together their interactions are lovely and you know, I don't think they ever had a story where, like, when the group gets separated and breaks off into groups, I don't think we've ever really had another story where it was the two of them. And this, I think this is the first one we've had. No, I like they—they've had amazing moments together in 
various stories. But I don't think there's been a one where they've they've been a team in and of themselves because it's yeah. usually gone like it's either gone writerton or science bros. Yeah, I I would have loved to have seen more of that. I think I think there was a missed opportunity. What I love most about Barbara in this episode is in the second or in this story is in the second episode, which is when. Clearly, she wants nothing more than to get away from the Iridians, right? They're going to hand her mm. over to the Daleks. And she gets, you know, quite, you know, fuck this shit, I'm out, like. And then the Mire Beast breaks through the wall. She immediately turns around and tries to help the Iridian who's being attacked by the Mire Beast. And she's trying so desperately to save him that she has to be physically pulled away. But, like, he's manhandling her, the doctor, to get her to leave. Because she can't bear the thought of this Iridian who, you know, she understands his position, was going to give her up to the Daleks. It, it kind of a nice callback to uh, an unearthly child with um, Za. Yeah, exactly. I do have two criticisms of Barbara, though. <gasps> criticisms of Barbara? Yeah, I know. By you? Yeah, I know. It's, 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 a, bit, it's a bit startling. Although in my notes, I did I did clarify. I've, I do have two criticisms of the lovely Barbara. Because she's lovely. Oh, okay. <laughs> One. You are on a very short time schedule of when the ship needs to basically recharge and move on to the next time jump. Why, oh, why do you keep leaving the fucking ship? She's always the first one out the door. Mm. <laughs> so it's an issue I have with the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. But Barbara is always the first one out the fucking door. Like, dude, the Daleks are on your tail. Just stay in the ship. Just stay. They can't get you in there. Just stay in the ship. And when you hit 12 minutes, go. And two, and this this actually is the proper criticism, right? Because that's not really a criticism. This is the proper criticism. The noise she made when she found the light gun thing, which is essentially just a flashlight. And she was pretending to attack the Daleks. What the fuck was that? How is that a criticism? It's amazing. Pew, pew, pew. No, no, I'm sorry. That It's like Ian doing it last week in the Space Museum. It's so not them. I don't get it. Uh, but I, I, th- I think it's... I, I remember you made the comment to me before about um, Sarah Jane. Is that yeah. if you kind of, if you take a look back at it, you notice that when she starts off, she's she acts like uh, a woman that's maybe like ten years older than what she actually is, but then by the end of it, she I won't say devolves, but she takes on a much more childlike nature. Yeah. So maybe the same is here with the with Ian and Barbara. Yeah, maybe I think just for Barbara's last story, it was a bit fucking. Where did that come from? Hmm. The important thing, thing though, go on. No, I was going to say, one thing I found interesting was the, point, the fact that she's the one that suggests to use the time machine and not Ian. I actually don't find that very surprising because while we laud Ian for his intelligence and his scientific intellect and stuff, Barbara has always been the one who's faster on the optic mm. out of the two of them. So how, shall we move on from the dynamic duo and discuss the villains of the piece? I would just like to add, I don't want them to go. No one wants them to go. Okay, let's move on to the villains. So, the three that we have 
to look at specifically are the Daleks, the Mechanoids, and the Fungoids. I do want to give an honorable mention, though, to the Meyer Beasts. Hmm. Those things were weird. Yeah, just basically sand squids or swamp squids. Yeah, it's like a, a sand octopus. Mm-hmm. I didn't find them exceptionally scary. They were weird. They mm-hmm. worked in that moment, and they were weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> cool. So, do we want to do smallest to largest, best to worst? What? We'll do, we'll do we'll do like smallest to largest. So, I suppose the fungoids. Okay, my notes on the fungoids are ew ew ew. Nope nope nope. Don't like sentient plant things. They can bugger right off. Yeah, I, I pretty much, again, you read my notes. I'm like, no, fuck that shit. Burn them, send them to hell, get rid of them. Um, thanks to David Attenborough documentaries and Peter Jackson's King Kong, I have a healthy terror of jungle-based flora and fauna. Yeah, I don't know why I had such a visceral reaction to them that I didn't have to the Meyer Beasts. I think it was the Meyer Beast eyes were a little funny, so I just saw them as sand squid. But there was something about the fungoids and the fact that they just like envelop you and you sort of imagine them like absorbing you. It, it no. I think I think that's the thing about um kind of like the the animus from web planet the web planet is that the fungoids they're featureless. Like yeah. so therefore they don't like they are sentient, but they don't look like they have intelligence. And therefore I think they're a small bit scarier. They can bugger off, though. I didn't like them at all. <laughs> cool. So how about we bugger off away from them and discuss the mechanoids? Yes. Yeah, so again, the mechanoids are weird. Um, I didn't see them as being exceptionally scary. The way I saw that they had three ways of killing you. One was by boredom, by mm-hmm. locking you in a zoo. The second was by hugging you. And the third was by setting you on fire. Now that last one, kind of cool. Mm. The scariest thing I did find about them, though, is they sound a little bit like the Teddy Ruxpin I had as a child. I never had a Teddy Ruxpin, so I can't uh, equate to that. Yeah, when we're done recording today, go look up clips of the original Teddy Ruxpin. And yeah, they sound a little bit of that. Will do. For me, uh, I've put down like in my notes with exclamation marks, unleash the Christmas balls of death because that's what the mechanoids look like. They look like Christmas baubles. Um, but going past their design, I'm actually kind of interested in the mechanoids uh, in the sense of like we've seen in other sci-fi shows in our franchises that like robots that have, you know, that are isolated for a very long time, they somehow gain sentience due to the isolation whereas here the mechanoids are simple no we've built the city we're waiting for the um, the colonizers or the the colonists we're just gonna stay here oh wait this guy's arrived he is not a colonist cool into the zoo you go now we're just gonna stay here yeah they're kind of like a weird wally mm. without the personality pretty much and they like also like the thing of even though like you're not meant to be there unless you are aggressive towards them they'll kill you as humanely as possible as you said via boredom yeah or giving you a hug hug of that hug of that 
Yeah, the thing that entered my mind actually when you're talking about Christmas baubles is the mechanoids is what I would call the revenge of the crystal maze. The crystals strike back. <laughs> we are sick and fucking tired of Richard O'Brien sending people into us. <laughs> uh, time warp this bitch. <laughs> Um, cool. Like, so like, for a one-off villain, and like for the way that they're done, I am kind of curious as to see why people want to bring them back. Because, like, from from what I can see, they're just essentially servitor robots. Yeah. And they're not inherently evil. So unless no, the whole thing say, was... like, if people want them to be brought back. In the way that they were in this story. You have to go between the 50 years where mm. they arrived on the planet and Steven arrived on the planet. Yeah. Because otherwise, they're just servicer bots. Yeah. Unless they like they were used in a different capacity in the, the war that Steven mentioned. And maybe, maybe like they're a multi- maybe they're a multifunctional one that can be used as either war machines or construction machines. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, yeah, they're a weird one to want to bring back. Hmm? Uh, I wonder if it's because they took out the Daleks. Yeah, and I actually have comments about that in my overall. Um, just in relation to how the sequence, what it reminds me of. But yeah. they they are, like, the fact that they went toe to, like, the Daleks, the fact that the Daleks seem to be kind of, hang on a sec here now, we, we're up against something a bit tough. So I, I, I like that. It, it very subtly got a, across the danger of the Mechanoids, I think. Yeah. So shall we move on to the Daleks? Yep. So, do you want me to go first, or you go first? I'll go first this time. So the Daleks have the ability to time travel purely to capture the Doctor and his friends. Yeah. That is good to know. Future Dalek, Doctor, time-based war stuff. Mm. The story was essentially a giant game of chasing, hence the name. But I think the Daleks were true to form in... Not letting anything stand in their way. Do you know, yeah. They just kept going. They had an objective and the point was to meet that objective. The mm. robot doctor was a genius idea. And I'm curious to see if the technology is ever used again. And what one thing I uh, I love about the robot doctor is that when he fo- when it encounters Ian by itself, it basically, it batters him. Very simply. Yeah. But then when it gets attacked by the real doctor... It deliberately lowers its strength so that it can't be found out that easily. Yeah, I found that too. I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And for something that is like, it's it's outdone or it's, it basically gets found out by the fact that the data that's put into it is incorrect or it's correct up until a certain point. Yeah. The fact that it's capable of like, you know, thinking of for itself on the spot, I thought was great. Yeah, one of the things I actually would have found really interesting is the person that the Daleks actually had the most interactions with in the Daleks was Susan. Now, in the Dalek invasion of Earth, they obviously scan his mind to make him a Roboman, so maybe that's where they're getting all their data from. But in the Daleks itself, they spent more time with Susan. And obviously, they don't know that Susan stayed behind on Earth. So can you imagine if they created a robot Susan hoping she could infiltrate? Mm. 
only to then be found like, out by where the fuck did Susan come from? Yeah. It's it's a case of um, I've been here this entire time. How do you feel, shit. <laughs> the one with the Daleks is I think a lot of their interactions are a bit silly. Um, a lot of people rank this as their least favorite Dalek story, or it's you know in the bottom bottom levels of it. Um, one thing about classic Daleks is that they talk to each other a lot more. It, yeah. And I have yet to decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um. So I kind of like I'm kind of like in the same vein in the sense of like the silliness of it. Like there, there's one Dalek that clears that's clearly in charge of navigation, but he whenever he's asked how long will we it take for us to catch up to them it's like it's clear that intergalactic maths aren't a syllabus on scarrow because he's like um to uh and you know what i thought of space balls <laughs> who who made that man a navigator i did sir he's my cousin who's that he's an asshole i know that <laughs> what's his name <laughs> that's his name asshole dalek asshole Oh uh, yeah, they were a little bit silly. Um, not not overly much. I mean, I think you know it could have been a lot worse. But yeah. um, I think because there was so many of them, mm. or they tried to make so many of them. Um, that scene at the beginning where they enter the time ship. Yeah, yeah. Richard Martin said they were just going around circles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they did it about three times before one of them fell over, and then they stopped. Benny Hill music and team tune. Um. There's two things I really want to say about this story when it comes to the Daleks, though. Or, sorry, three mm. things. One, right. it's interesting that we actually get to see an enemy on par with the Daleks. Yes. In terms of uh, confrontation. So, the mechanoids. Two, this is the first story that categorically shows the Daleks of being capable of flight. While not actually show them capable of flight, we first see when the Dalek time machine lands on the Mary Celeste, it lands on the lower deck. Yes. When we go to other scenes, they're on the upper and lower on upper and lower decks. So therefore, Stephen or uh, Ian's comment later on about Daleks don't like stairs, it's kind of kiboshed. I wonder if they're a bit like R two D two, where they have like secret thrusters. Possibly, but like only, maybe yeah. only some of them have them. Maybe. I think there was a thing in the some of the earlier Doctor Who annuals that the Daleks had these like little skiffs that they would transport on. Oh. Yeah. But the last thing that I want to uh, talk about is, so we've had three Dalek stories at this point in time. And we've actually gotten to see Daleks in three different capacities. So we've seen them on, on Scarrow, where they have no real knowledge of, well, at the time, no real knowledge of anything beyond Scarrow. Presumably. So we get to see them in their home environment. So we get to see Dalek City. The next thing we see is an invasion army and how they utilize the Robo-Men and stuff like that, you know? But this time I think it's interesting in that it's this is essentially a commando group being sent to hunt down an opponent. So we're seeing the the Daleks in three different scenarios. And I I, I think it's kind of cool that they're not just the same invading group every so uh, every time that they have to come you know the doctor and cole don't land on a planet that the daleks are attacking or have taken over yeah what i what i do like about this story and the daleks as well is if you're a fan of the daleks and how often they come up in the show this is the story that categorically declared the doctor as an enemy of the daleks mm-hmm. throughout time yes 
and that's a really for it, as silly as they can be that's a really good foundation that that was back with the first doctor the greatest enemy so another very interesting and a small bit emotional character discussion this week so we're now going to go into the overall section and give our final thoughts and our scores on the story so trish would you like to go first so yeah i'm sad now come on pull the band-aid off <laughs> um okay so when i first watched this story you know a number of years ago i didn't get overly emotional about it about ian and barbara leaving because i was watching them all out of order anyway and there were several stories that you know i either ordered the dvds or i was planning on buying the dvds that i hadn't seen yet so it wasn't really the end of ian and barbara for me because i had more stories to watch this time is different though watching the stories in order knowing this would be the last story with them was hard i've always been a big fan of the two of them like always and never but through the rewatch i really connected with them and i don't want them to go i don't want to stop talking about them i put off watching this story all week i actually only finished watching it about 14 hours ago <laughs> you know we have a week to get these things ready and i watched this 14 hours ago and i'm not gonna lie i cried at the end of it um it's possible that had i watched them in order the first time my reaction would have been a lot more visceral there's um a youtuber whose channel name i repeatedly forget but if you look up like classic who reactions she'll she'll come up and you'll know when you see her she went into the story not knowing that ian and barbara left at the end and her reaction is heart-wrenching when she realizes what's happening and i'm pretty sure had i not known this was going to be the last we saw of ian and barbara i would have been the same so part of me wants to give this story a zero because it means no more ian and barbara <laughs> but if i'm being honest i'd give it a three it had some it was an interesting story some of the settings were very good but nothing really stood out to me as memorable other than ian and barbara leaving for some reason it had lots of good ideas but i just didn't really get drawn into it like richard martin has said that everyone was very tired by the time they got to make this story and and maybe that's it you know maybe i picked up on that when i was watching it more so than um i would have done on a previous story one thing that i think they missed a trick on is that in the original script the haunted house thing the doctor's explanation that they were inside the human mind and what they were seeing was basically human fear manifesting itself that was what it was meant to be which i think is fascinating but verity lambert changed it to be oh it was just a haunted house and i this is one of the times where me and verity are going to disagree because i think that was a bad bad choice yeah like i i'm not a huge fan of the haunted like episode three i think 
uh, oh, sorry, that's episode four. I'm not a huge fan of episode four. Like, it's got one or two funny bits in it with the whole, you know, you go first type thing. And it gives the laugh of, you know, as we had earlier on, of like, you know, Vicky calling out a warning to Dracula. But it's just so... Uh, I, like, it probably would have been better if it had been, like, you know, as you said, like, oh, the, the mindscape. Yeah. But just the way it was, it was like... If you're cap- like if you're capable of creating technology that can withstand Dalek attack Dalek weaponry like this, like why isn't that stuff being replicated and used to fight Daleks all over the universe? Yeah, like there was a couple of things that I found quote unquote wrong. So a couple of things that Doctor points for me, right? The first was nobody noticing that they left Vicky behind. Like how the fuck do you manage that? Hmm. That makes no fucking sense. Knowing these people the way we do. That makes no fucking sense at all. So that was a bad setup. It would have been better if Vicky had been captured and told them to leave or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the way it happens, they just no one noticed, and they were all pottering around the ship doing their own thing, and no one noticed she wasn't there. No, it's very home alone. Yeah, Kevin, Vicky. <laughs> the second was. Like I said, some of the comedy seemed a bit weird. The Barbara faking gun noises. I didn't like it when Ian did it in the Space Museum. I didn't like it this time either. As I mentioned, the way they simply forgot Stephen or just put them out, put him out of their mind, I think was a bit um, much. And this is going to sound weird, um, but Ian and Barbara's departure. Okay. So they don't get docked points because my two favourite characters have left. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> uh, and actually, I would give them points that the whole story isn't about Ian and Barbara leaving. Mm. There's a couple of other companions who this is the way they leave were sort of tacked on at the end. Um, and I think they did that really well and they explained it in a really good way. This is a really good story to work their departure into. It was handled really, really well in that context. What I didn't like is, while I think it's fitting... <laughs> At the time with the doctor ends in an argument. Because yeah. <laughs> that's just what their life with him has been. Um, I would have wanted to see a proper goodbye. Like, why didn't they show right. us inside the time ship when he was setting things for them? Like, they don't even say goodbye to Vicky. The doctor at least has an argument. Vicky has nothing. She says nothing to them directly. Hmm. And I think for... I mean, it was an emotional whammy anyway. <laughs> so maybe it's a good thing that they didn't go into it more because I would have been inconsolable on the couch. But I I think they deserved a, a proper, you know, goodbye scene with the Doctor. I'll gi- we'll, gi- we'll do a bit of a headcanon here and we'll just say that William Hartnell uh, was too emotional in which to actually do it and so they decided to save him the the pain. And that's why they left it out. Maybe. Um, there are things that I, like I said, I would have loved to see developed further. I think the robot doctor was a terrific idea. Can you imagine if they did like a whole story, like maybe a four episode, and at the end hmm. of the fourth episode, we find out that it's actually an imposter. Like, don't go as, as far as they did with like the replacement Lois and Lois and Clark, but like, you hmm. know, imagine having an entire story of the doctor acting completely normal. And you only find out at the end, like say like Vicky leaves the room and suddenly he refers to her as Susan. And you're like, what? And then you find out in the next story that he was a fake. 
That would be really Shakar. cool. That would be really cool. <laughs> the idea of the zoo I thought was really good, except they're only in it for five minutes. So that was kind of a road to nowhere. Um, and like I said, the goodbye. I love the stuff in London. Because <laughs> it's Ian and Barbara yeah. being total dorks. <laughs> Which is great. And the two of them finding joy in the simplest of things. But I would have liked to have seen a, a proper goodbye. Well, I say that. I probably I probably wouldn't have had no, I been forced you, to watch no, you, it. You, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. Yeah, so overall for me, I think it's a grand story. But other than the departure of Ian and Barbara, there's nothing that really stands out to me as memorable. So I've gone a small bit higher. Uh, I've given it a four mm-hmm. uh, because again, like there's like I love some of the bits in it, like the do- Ian's dad dancing and the doctor's boogie wooging away, like when he's listening to the Beatles. Uh, it always gets a smile out of me. Um, the concept of the chase I thought was really cool. It reminded me of uh, Thirty Three from Battlestar Galactica. Mm. Uh, like you know, we only have X amount of time, and time is steadily decreasing. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. Um, I love the fight, the choreo- the the cinematography for the fight scene between the Daleks and the Mechanoids. It reminds me very much of the hallway fight from Terminator Two. Oh yeah. In the sense of yeah, they're they're kind of almost e- evenly matched, minus you know throwing each other into walls and uh, shooting coke technicians. Um, the stuff that. Um, uh, the stuff that kind of takes it away from me are episode four. I'm not a fan of at all. It just, it just seems to weirdly stall the pace a small bit. Mm. And episode three, I love the concept of the Mary Celeste bit. Yeah, I hate. There's a section in it where when everyone's freaking out, and the captain of the ship, his wife, and infant son, who's uh, only a baby, they get knocked over overboard by a panicking sailor. But the music is done in a sort of a comedic, um, Romans-esque music style. And it just doesn't sit right. Like, this woman and child have been thrown overboard and you're kind of making a bit light of it. Yeah, that the, the music choice in this story was a little bit odd in general. It was very much tying in with the chase. Do you know what I mean? So they, they sort of... Yeah. I wouldn't say they Benny Hilled it, but they weren't far off. Um, yeah. But yeah, that particular, because like, the wife goes to the edge, but she gets pushed off, <laughs> do you know? Yeah. I don't know if I would have liked it better or worse if she had made the choice to jump herself, because that clearly was her intention. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it, it it didn't sit well with me just by what it was anyway. But yeah, you're right. The yeah. music was a, a poor choice. And I suppose I have that extra bit of kind of dad awareness now that, you know, the <laughs> Alice is like 15 months old. Yeah. So, yeah, like I like those two episodes, episode three, I don't mind as much, but I did not like episode four. So they kind of derailed the story a small bit for me. But the but the other episodes, one, two and five and six, there's what they were. They are what kind of saves it for me with the. I suppose like the, the kind of humor enough and at the start on the Iridian planet, you know, with the, oh not my cardigan, not again, and like the sunbathing and having all the fun. But then the final two episodes where you have the robot doctor infiltrating and you have the battle with the mechanoids, 
and again like the really good discussion between Ian and Barbara and the doctor at the end and that moral conscious thing with Vicky that like that's why it's a four like I, I wouldn't put it higher than a four though and, and as much as I do love Ian and Barbara yeah the the, the detractors detra- detract for a reason I think yeah and like I don't know maybe part of my score is you know phased by the fact that you know I went into the story knowing they were leaving and I have become really attached to these characters and I really really like them and I'm not looking forward to not discussing them anymore Jeez, if that's the case Hand of Fear is fucked <laughs> <laughs> minus 10 never watch it but yeah it's like maybe if I hadn't known this was their last episode I mean if I hadn't been putting it off all week I would have scored it slightly higher because like, there are plenty of things I liked about it but for me personally like even like the fight between the mechanoids and the Daleks it's it's one tin can attacking another tin can. <laughs> you know, one of which is completely a tin can and one of which has a little squid thing inside it. Um, yeah. You know, while they did it very well and like, you know, the effect of the city burning and everything was done really, really well. I just found that I didn't get as drawn into the story as I did, say, the Keys of Marinus, which is a very similar yeah. type of story. Yeah, because uh, I actually keys and is because of all the location hopping that 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 kind of came into my head as well. Yeah, and like if we if we look back on the keys of Marinus, I gave the keys of Marinus a four, and so did you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, maybe it's because Ian and Barbara are leaving, and I'm really upset. <laughs> so how about we uh, no longer prolong your agony and we sign off for this week. Yes, we probably should. And so we say goodbye to Ian and Barbara, but not just yet, because as with Susan, we will do a special episode based on our thoughts and feelings for Miss Wright and Mr. Chesterton, who I refer to as Wrighterton. Yes, on Wednesday, we'll be uploading that rambling in the TARDIS. And then next Monday, it'll be back to our normal schedule where we see where the TARDIS will take the Doctor and Vicky in the final story of season two, The Time Meddler. I would have gotten away with it too. It wasn't for you meddling time meddler. (laughs) (laughs) So until next week, guys. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.